This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. My name is Rob Snowy, and this is my Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is episode 239, featuring Glenn Blackwood from the Great Lakes Fly Fishing Company. I met Glenn at the 2019 Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, and he had so much to say about fishing books and antique gear, and then about Switcher and Richards, I decided I needed to give him a call and get his whole story on a podcast. So this is Glenn Blackwood from the Great Lakes Fly Fishing Company. This episode, we're going to discuss the five epicenters of fly fishing, the importance of presentation and your first presentation, Michigan's fishing seasons, possibly the definitive answer for ketchup versus mustard on hot dogs. We'll talk some baseball trivia. Finally, we're going to finish up talking about sandwiches. I want to give a shout out to this morning's clients, Drew and Green Thumb Dominic. I felt bad for Dominic. He hooked a really big bass, and I stood up to get the net, and the wind pushed us towards the shore where the fish was able to swim underneath a floating dock and pop us off. I could have been on the oars, or I could have been on the net, but I could not have done both, and unfortunately, I chose the wrong one. So, Dominic, I'm sorry we lost a big one this morning, but I'm glad you guys had fun, and hopefully you're going to put down those spinning rods. This is Glenn's Podcast. 
we have Glenn Blackwood with us today. How are you doing? I am just wonderful. It's a gorgeous August day here in Michigan. Fantastic. And where in Michigan are you right now? We're in a little town of Rockford, 10 minutes north of uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's kind of central mid part of the state, about an hour in from the coast, if you will. And uh, near the Rogue River, which is one of uh, Trout Unlimited's National Home Waters projects. So that's uh, our local water. And are you a native to Michigan? Oh, no. I am an immigrant. I am an immigrant. I grew up in South Central Ohio uh, in the Springfield, Yellow Springs area. Uh, but my family's roots are in Center County, Pennsylvania. So I learned to fish on the Spring Creek, the Spring Creek uh, through Center County as well as uh, a lot of the smaller freestone streams in Center County, like coming Tioga County's uh, Slate Run, Cedar Run, Pine Creek, Young Women's Creek uh, there. So I, I've kind of bounced around before we ended up here in, in Michigan. So I've got to ask, which college football, if any, is it Penn State, Michigan, or Ohio State? Well, um, since I'm an Ohio State alumni, it is Ohio State. Go Bucks! When uh, go Bucks! Long story short, uh, being from a Midwestern family with kind of differentiation roots, uh, I applied to two schools, Penn State and Ohio State, and couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. So my family had this big uh, fried chicken Sunday afternoon dinner when I was going to decide where I was going to go to college. And I flipped a coin and heads was Ohio State and tails had Penn State because Nittley Lions have tails. And it, it came up uh, OSU and uh so, uh, yes, I'm an Ohio State alumni living right. in Michigan. Yeah, I didn't know about Michigan-Ohio State until I got married. But we're excited for a new quarterback and a new head coach this year. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting. But there's three reasons to live in Michigan, and those are trout, grouse, and woodcock. What about steelhead? Does that count as trout? Steelhead falls under the trout or the anatomous category. Okay. Certainly. Well, I guess we'll get into that. How long have you been in Michigan now? Um, well, I've been here for more or less the past 30 years. Uh, I started my fly fishing career here. Um, kind of a long story, don't want to bore a bunch of people with, uh, but had an opportunity to go to work for Dick Popes at the Thornapple Orvis shop in Ada, Michigan years ago. And uh, went to work for him and then kind of digressed and moved a couple other places and then came back to Michigan. And we've been here and raised our family ever since. And how many kids do you have? We have two children, uh, Kathleen and I, and uh, we have a daughter, Megan, who uh, actually, uh, for, because of where you are, lives inside the Beltway, graduated uh, from GW and uh, works in D.C. All right. And then I have a son who uh, is still here at home, is uh, kind of the, uh, what should we say, computer, uh, lives in the computer world, so... Uh, we're very fortunate we have two great children and uh, be able to play. Yeah. How did you come about becoming a fly shop owner? Um, that's a, a really, really long story. The, the, the short answer is crashed and burned in one business um, and kind of went on a walkabout. And about the only thing that I could do that was somewhat reasonable was catch fish. So... Uh, Dick and Nancy Popes at the old Thornapple Orvis shop gave me an opportunity and I went to work for them 
and uh, then went on and uh, worked for uh, Scott Flyrods for a while, and uh, they got married in between, and my wife's father was having some health issues, and we had to come back to, uh, to Michigan, and there was a fly shop here that uh, was uh, in distress, and uh, I got asked to, to look at it, and, and quite honestly, uh, I thought we were going to go back to Pennsylvania. I thought, uh, you know, I was going to live somewhere in the Pine Creek Valley between Slate Run and Cedar Run and do something, and uh, one thing led to another, and we've had a pretty good run here for uh, close to 25, 27 years. That's fantastic. And do the children fish? Um, both our children fish. Uh, Megan and her significant other, Reed, uh, are probably stronger fishermen than Ian. Ian's a really good catcher. When fishing's good, he likes to play, but when things are tough... Uh, there's other things he'd like to do. And, and my wife fishes as well. Um, and it's, it's kind of the same way. Uh, it's, it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Teaching children to fish and becoming impassioned about it is a, a, a really a challenge for lots of people. You know, my family's had some great opportunities um, over the years. And, and, you know, what do those opportunities make of them? Uh, you know, some people love it, and, and it's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, at the, the end of the day, when you play a round of golf, you find success 18 times when you put the ball in the cup. And in angling, fly fishing, you can cast a thousand times and still come up empty. And, and it really depends upon the, the individual's uh, personality to see if they grasp it or not. Do you get to spend time with your wife on the water and argue or not argue? Uh, <laughs> um, most of the time when I'm on the water with Miss Kathleen, uh, or Kathleen, I should say, um, I say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, I'll be glad to tie on your fly. Yes, um, you made a nice cast. Uh, you might want to mend there. But no, we, we certainly don't argue on the water. Um, it, it's fun to get out there and, and spend that couple's time together. Did you have any mentors that, that really helped you get into fly fishing where you'd be able to go work for Scott and work for an Orvis shop and then well, eventually own a store? You know, mentors, uh, I have more mentors than I can count or discuss. Uh, it, it starts with my grandfather and my father and a bunch of old men in, in central Pennsylvania. So that and old school style Pennsylvania that, fishing yeah. from mid last century. And, you know, and I sometimes sounds like I wear this on my sleeve and I'm not trying to, but my great grandfather had a timber camp, several timber camps in central PA. If you drew a line from Phillipsburg to Snowshoe, Milesburg to kind of Port Matilda on the map, uh, my grandfather or great grandfather and his contemporaries timbered that stuff. And my grandfather grew up in the, the timber camps back when they timbered with horse and wagons wow and those guys learned to fish not for sport they learned to fish for sustenance they learned to fish because they had to feed a timber camp and in the little town where my grandparents grew up the train ran up the valley and down the valley several times a day and if you were of the female gender 
you got a train ticket to school both ways. And if you were a, of male gender, you got a ticket one way and you could figure out, did you want to ride the train to school and walk home or vice versa? And my great uncle and, or my grandfather, my great uncle Gibb and G. Harold, the names don't matter. But all of these guys, they had ride the train to school and they had hunt and fish their way back down the Alleghenies, the Bald Eagle Creek on the way home. So they learned to fish and were really good fishermen. What sort of gear did they have back then? Oh, long cane poles and braided black lines and apothecary corks and hooks. Wow. And that. And that stuff still worked back then? Oh, it's still, and it still works today. Yeah. Uh, I, I can tell you, fish are fish are fish. Nothing's really changed except we try and make it more modern. And I, but anyway, so they really learned how to fish and they learned how to fish those creeks. So I had those mentors. And then growing up as a boy, as my, my grandfather became a fly angler, my grandmother's best friend was a lady by the name of Mrs. Wild. And her back porch or her backyard butted up to George Harvey the famous wow. Penn State guy, yeah. uh, professor's house. And my grandmother didn't drive. So every time we went out there to visit on vacation or spend time, and we went to go see Mrs. Wild, Mrs. Wild would call Mr. Harvey and say, hey, can you take care of these kind of this young kid? Because he's bored out of his mind. He doesn't want to sit here and listen to my his grandmother and I quibble. And so I was very fortunate to spend time in Mr. Harvey's fly time room. Um, and through him, I met Joe Humphreys and Charlie Mech. And then I went to work for Dick Pope's, which led me to meet Carl Richards and a plethora of other people, Gary LaFontaine, Mike Lawson, Kelly Gallup uh, from being here in Michigan. I've been very, very fortunate, it not sound like to name drop, but to be around some incredible anglers and learn a lot from them. So you really were brought up with a lot of very well-informed anglers. Uh, well, certainly, I, I don't want to say well-informed anglers. I want to say really skillful anglers. Some of them were well-informed or well-informed. But you have to understand that I grew up at a time when we didn't know a lot of the things that we know today and a lot of the things that we take for granted. I had great mentors and these old guys that knew how to read water and how to catch fish, whether they did it with salted minnows or worms or nymphs or flies. But as true fly anglers, they may not have understood the whole picture and that whole picture really was revolutionized in my mind when dr carl richards and doug swisher wrote selected trout taking nothing away from mr harvey and, and mr humphreys and charlie mech and that pennsylvania marinero that pennsylvania limestone school that's when the world started to change and, and people began to really understand what insects and hatches and spinnerfalls and emergences and emergers or nymphs were, were all about. When did that book come out? 
Selective Trot, I believe, came out in 72. Um, I should know that off the top of my head, and I, I, I'm thinking it's 72. Um, but here's, again, those that may have met me know that I, I'm long-winded, and I talk a long way around the bar in the stories. But my grandfather was a really intelligent individual. He was a heck of a lot smarter than I am. He was an aeronautical engineer for the federal government. I mentioned that he grew up in lumber camps. And when he was a little kid, the very first airplane flew across Center County, Belfont, the county seat, and they took all the kids out to see it. This is kind of the turn of the 1900s. And he was so enamored by this airplane flying over Center County, Belfont, Pennsylvania, where Spring Creek flows right through the city. If you ever get there, you, you go there and put money in the little fish pellet thing and feed the fish and watch how they react to drifts in there. It's, it's a really educational aspect. But anyway, he became an aeronautical engineer with the federal government and went to Carnegie Mellon, wow. Carnegie, yeah, Carnegie Mellon at that time, which is now Carnegie Tech. Ended up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Fairborn, Ohio. That's how our family ended up in Ohio. Uh, long story, but always went back to PA. But as a little kid, I can remember, because he was a smart guy, he always fished a semi-spent female Adams. Now think of this fly. It's not a traditional Catskill upright wing Adams. It's not a spent Adams. It's a half-spent female Adams that had an egg sack tied on the butt the hackle wings out three quarters. And he always fished that. That was his go-to fly for everything. He adjusted sizes, but that was his fly. And all of a sudden he read Selective Trout and he brought that book to me and said, you have to read this because for the first time in his life, he understood that there were duns and then they went into the trees for two days and they morphed and they became spinners and they came back and they mated and the spinners hit the water and understood the life cycle. Up until that time, it hadn't been talked in layman's terms. And through his own, you know, Kentucky windage or trial and error, whatever you want to call it, he fished a half spent Adams. Why? Because... It was not all the way up. It wasn't all the way down. It was in between. There was an egg sack on the back for whether it's a henny spinner or a sulfur spinner or whatever you want to fish. Um, he was just trying to come up with what I say multiple triggering aspects. And all of a sudden, he understood it. And once Swisher and Richards wrote Selective Trout, then the door got opened up to all of that. Um, I'm pontificating about books here, but you own a bookstore. I expect you to. Well, I own a fly shop that we have 4,000 fly fishing and wing shooting books. And I know a little bit about angling literature, but once that opened up, then that was the emphasis for hatches. It was the emphasis for LaFontaine's caddis flies. I mean, that's the seminal work, which Nick Lyons published when he was with Winchester press. That was the similar work that really opened up fly fishing to get to where it is today and everything that's come past that. 
I don't know if I answered your question or not, or just went off on a tangent. No, not but, at all. And, and uh, that was where the, the term match the hatch was born. Well, match the hatch was written by Ernest Schwieber. Here's an interesting side note, and I am not putting myself in this categories, but most, both Ernie Schwieber and Carl Richards graduated from the Ohio state university. Um, Schwieber wrote match the hatch. He was originally from Chicago. His father was a traveling salesman in the summer. He would travel Northern Michigan on a sales route and let Ernie, Mr. Schwieber, um, fish. And he actually wrote match the hatch while he was an undergrad at OSU. That's impressive. Trivia that you may not care about, but it's here anyway. How was the re- reception of Swisher and Richards? Swisher and Richards is the way that it's in print. It's the best-selling fly fishing book of, of all times, or it was at, at one time. Um, it's It really brought technical angling books to light. Um, as did their other books, um, Fly Fishing Strategies, which came next, tying Swisher and Richard's flies, which their fly patterns um, are a whole nother discussion that you can go into. Um, they're low riding, no hackles, and other things. Who's the uh, the four-legged friend joining us tonight? Um, well, I think that was Laurel, our uh, 12-year-old English Springer uh, Spaniel, field-bred Springer Spaniel that we gun over in the fall. And uh, there's a, a black cocker around here named Bosco as well, who's an English cocker spaniel that uh, hopefully they won't uh, disrupt us too much with barking. They're better than my kid interrupting us. <laughs> Both bark, though. Um, so, yeah. yeah. How long was there a change in the flies available at a certain point after this book came out? When did people start tinkering with their patterns to look like the stages in the life cycle of a mayfly, caddisfly, stonefly? Well, I think if, if you look at it, fly pattern design from a historical perspective, and we think of, when we think of dry flies, and it, it comes from England to the Catskills, and, and I can go off on a tangent, but I look at there's basically five epicenters of fly fishing in the country. The Rangeley Lake main region carries Stephen flies, Landlocka salmon flies, the Rangeley Lake region. There's the Catskills um, and the great Catskill flies that were tied by the Darbies and the Deddies and Art Flick and Tallur and Paul Jorgensen and Leon. Joan Wolf and, and all the people in that region. Then there's the Pennsylvania limestone flies, the flies that Marinero talks about, the thorax flies that he writes about so eloquently in Modern Dry Fly Code and in The Ring of the Rise, um, <clears throat> and the Charlie Fox, Ed Shank style flies, or those Pennsylvania Spring Creek flies. And then there's the West Coast Golden Gate Bridge kind of casting epicenter that we have there. And then there's Michigan. And what is different is even though our rivers are 
similar to the Latorte and Spring Creeks in style. We don't have the riffles. We don't have the topography, the broken water. So a really heavily hackled Catskill-style red quill or Cahill or wolf pattern. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. It's too high in the water column for our flies here for our fish here because we have very tabletop water in the Asado, the Manistee, the Pierre Marquette, the Rogue. We don't have a lot of gradient uh, because of our topography. Is that because it was all glaciated when they retreated and just carved it? It was carved out. It's flat. So Swisher and Richards with their no hackle pattern looked at a very flush body style and duck quill wings. Their paradrake pattern being a, an early parachute style pattern. Their wiggle nets showing movement in their nymph patterns. And this all came from research on the Rogue River where here in the town where I live because both Carl and Doug lived here as well as on the Asable and streams out west, especially the ranch area of the Henry's Fork. A lot of the early, early snow hackles that were tied, um, that were sold commercially at Gates of Saddle Lodge, bought by Cal Gates, was tied by uh, Mike Lawson and Renee Harrop. That's another little piece of trivia a lot of people don't know about um, because they, Doug and Carl, fished out there as well. But they started looking at where that body floated in the water column. And because we didn't have riffles or broken water or turbulent water, we didn't need those really heavy hackled flies like you may need on a Catskill stream or on Slate Run or Cedar Run, a, a turbulent freestone stream in north central Pennsylvania or other places uh, in the east. Or think of, of flies of the west, a humpy or a double humpy or those big, heavily hackled flies for that heavy, fast-moving water. And Carl and Doug really brought those sorts of things to light in their books. What was your reaction the first time you read their books? Just Uh, mind-blown? I can remember as a little kid, again, you have to understand that in 72, I would have been like 9, 10 years old, Okay. And I'd been fishing for a while, and I'd been on some pretty technical trout streams by modern standards. I mean, I'd fished Spring Creek with flies. I'd fished Spruce Creek with flies. I fished Slate Run, Cedar Run, Pine Creek, Young Women's Creek, Kettle Creek with flies. With very limited success, I might add. But all of a sudden, it made sense why sometimes bugs were going up in the air and sometimes bugs were coming down in the air. It made sense why 
you could see a fish rising and he wouldn't eat the fly that you put over him because the fish was eating emergers. Now, maybe my presentation, and most likely it was, was pretty t bad. The fish wasn't going to eat that fly anyway. But all of a sudden it made sense. And it made sense, and I talk about this today, flies are just like a vegetable garden. Here in Michigan, early season, we have blackstone flies and Hendrickson, okay? What do we eat early season? We eat asparagus, because that's the fresh produce. And then we have cherries and blueberries, and then we get tomatoes, and then we get apple, peaches, and then apples, and the produce goes through the year, and the hatches are the same way. And if, if you look at it that way and explain to, to young anglers or, or novice anglers that way, they begin to understand why you know, a Hendrickson's not going to work in August and a Hopper's not going to work in April. Most of the time. So you can avoid carrying all sorts of unnecessary flies throughout the year as well. Oh, more you room see, in your box. You can hedge your bet. Um, I own a fly shop, so I like you to carry as many flies as possible <laughs> and buy as many. But, you know, all joking aside, most of the time when you go to the river, the fish are going to be feeding on a, a small handful of things. Um, and you can get that understanding many, many ways and much easier today than you could when I was a little kid. What are some of the modern flies now that you use throughout the year in Michigan that you sell? Modern flies that I use. Or historical. Fly, just historical flies. Any flies? What, what are your... Some of the traditional, maybe that's the right word, uh, hatch matching favorites. Well, <clears throat> uh, starting with Hendrickson's and going through, um, I fish a variety of Hendrickson flies. I think one of the things. Uh, that I, I'm going to say, and I'm not trying to be hesitant about this, but I fish flies that are slightly different than those that come in the bins of our store because everybody's buying the flies in our store. This is very candid, and probably I shouldn't say this on your webpage. The flies that we sell in our store that are tied by local tires that are very good, that catch fish, that's okay. But I want my fly to be a little different. If I sell 10 dozen sulfurs today and I go fishing tonight, I want my fly to be a little bit different. Um, so I look at patterns, and for a long time I've said that I look at a broad variety of patterns. And I try and, like Pennsylvania flies, if I see a really cool fly in Pennsylvania, I'll fish it in Michigan and Montana probably not going to fish it in Pennsylvania. If I find a really cool Montana fly, I'm going to fish it in Michigan and Pennsylvania, probably not going to fish it in Montana because it gives the fish a different taste. This time of the year, um, Russ Mowry, who was an old tire up in the, the Pine Creek, Slate Run, Cedar Run area, tied a fly called the Slate Run Ant. I fish a lot of Slate Run Ants in Michigan this time of the year. Go see Tom Fink and Tom and Deb Finkbinder at the Slate Run Tackle Shop. Um, they stock them there. 
It's a great, great pattern. It's a really cool attractor pattern. Um, so I, I do things like that. But by and large, I'm a pretty much match-the-hatch style fisherman. If you get in the streamers, um, the pendulum in this sport swings so much. It used to be, you know, when I was growing up, everybody had to have short rods, and then we went to big, long rods, and now we're kind of coming back in the center. And it used to be that we fished single hook streamers, and then we went all the way to huge, you know, articulated monstrosities, which catch fish, don't get me wrong, and they catch big fish. But as I joke around, big fish scare me, and sometimes I just want an average side fish to, to land. So I'm fishing a few more traditional kind of herring streamers, traditional, you know, zonkers, muddlers, things that might have been uh, in vogue, if you will, a few years ago and aren't seen as often as... Uh, a double zoo cougar or whatever uh, fly of the day that you want to throw out there. Now the fish have not changed, so the flies still work. Now they've not they've been around for I don't know how many millions of years, and in sixty years they've not evolved to not like a fly pattern. Well <clears throat> unless they see it way too often. Uh, we're going on a whole different tangent here, but the premise of my life and my business and everything that I do is based upon this one principle. The perfect fly with a bad presentation will not land you a fish. But the wrong fly with a perfect presentation will get you in the game and give you opportunities. So... <clears throat> I think, again, you got to understand that I come from this old school of old guys that taught me to fish with live bait, crickets, and night crawlers, and things that are probably heretics to uh, the born again fly fishermen. Not sounding crass, but that's what I did uh, on this podcast. But I learned to fish old style a long time ago. And I don't care if you're fishing bait. You're fishing a hard bait, you're fishing a spinner, you're fishing a crankbait, you're fishing a plastic worm for a bass, you're fishing a fly, nymph, dry, streamer, or merger. It's all about the presentation. And presentation is the key. Any particular casts you prefer to say, get a parachute fly down or a, a split wing? The first cast is the best opportunity to catch any fish. And I'm not going to say that you're not going to catch a fish on your second, third, fourth, fifth, 18th cast. But here becomes a question, and in my programs and in teaching, I ask people this. If your goal is to catch 10 fish today, do you want to catch them on 10 casts, 20 casts, 40 casts, 80 casts, 160 casts, 320, 640, 1280. I can keep doing the math, so can you. And catching 10 fish on 10 casts is unrealistic. 
But with that said, if you cast enough times, you're going to luck into some fish that's going to eat your fly to make your day. It's just random numbers. So if we want to be efficient and we really want to be technical about it, and I guess I'm a kind of a technical angler at times, how do we do this so that we maximize our opportunities? Our first cast is always our best chance to land a fish. And I would ask people listening, bear with me here because I go a long way around the board. How many times have you made a great cast, made a great man, had a great drift, a fish comes up and eats the fly, and you're so amazed that the fish ate the fly that you muddle the hook set and you miss the fish? Well, let's look at what everything we've done. We've picked the right fly, picked the right tippet size, we've made a great cast, we've made a great mend, we've had the perfect presentation, and we don't have the confidence to believe that that fish is going to eat the fly because we make 50, 60, 80, 100 casts with nothing happen. I think you need to be so mentally focused that each drift a fish is going to eat that you never miss those. And there's a lot of analogies that professional batters, baseball players, and golfers can talk about that can cross over into fishing. Whether, I mean, if you think a professional golfer is 40 feet away from making an eagle at the Masters or the British Open or wherever, and he just thinks he's going to putt it close for a two-putt, no, he has the mental confidence and he plays that cat, that putt out in his mind, so it falls in the hole. Why don't we do that with fishing? Why don't, before we make that cast, we think, I've got a cast, drop the fly lightly, make a mend, feed it down, the fish is going to eat there, 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 there. I find myself a lot of times on a really good drift going, Eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. For no other reason than it, it's focusing me so when the fly disappears or the indicator moves or the streamer gets eight, I can set the hook. You've got to be ready for a fish on every cast or you're going to miss them. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing about fishing. Exactly. I can. It's the one thing I can concentrate on when there's all sorts of other stimuli going around. I can watch that fly or my clients the whole time. You know, that's it's that hard focus, and 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 I don't don't want to say that it's all about that. It's not about the numbers. You you have to enjoy the or enjoy the mink running up the bank or whatever the bird flying over or whatever. But still, your first cast is always your best opportunity to catch a fish. What are some of the fishing seasons for Michigan that that you work? Oh well, one of the great things about Michigan is because of Lake Michigan. And our anadromous fish species, salmon and steelhead, um, we really have a 365-day-year fishery weather-dependent. January and February can be kind of challenging, but on good winters, uh, we can fish year-round. So whether it's trout, salmon, steelhead, um, from a, a cold-water fishing perspective, we have those opportunities. But also within a stone's throw of my office or the shop, whatever you want to call it, or my house, 
you've got opportunities to catch smallmouth, largemouth, panfish, carp, northern pike, muskies. So being here in Michigan, we have a, a wonderful opportunity. So if you start the trout, you know, see, you start the fishing season in March with steelhead, and then by the end of April, we're into trout, and we have that through the hex hatch in June into July. And now we've got hot, low water. Uh, for trout fishing, we can go to smallmouth or warm water species. Um, and in a couple weeks, we're going to start seeing king salmon, followed by fall steelhead, and the whole gamut goes again. Not to mention the carp fishing that Lake Michigan has to offer uh, that rivals bone fishing anywhere in, uh, you know, the East Bay, West Bay of, of Traverse City, Wilderness State Park, um, in northern uh, Michigan on the, 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 the flats of Lake Michigan are just stunning. Beaver Island's another place. And, you know, inland lakes galore, if you want to catch warm water species, you know, like I said, largemouth, smallmouth, pike, and muskie. How does the weather affect? Do you, you get the lake effect weather that um, far inland? Where we are, we're about an hour in from the shore or the coast, if you will. So in the wintertime, we certainly have lake effect here, and lake effect certainly can affect us. You know, when you live in Michigan or any place in the northern climate, you, you really can't complain too much about it. Um, like I said, there's three reasons to live here, and that's trout, grouse, and woodcock. And uh, from, you know, March through the first part of December, it's a pretty spectacular place to play outdoor. So February can be a little challenging, I'll grant you. I'm not much of an ice angler. But if you like to ice fish, I mean, January and February, uh, those guys are all over it. So I've never seen a woodcock in the wild, and I was told that's because I need a dog to point them out to me. Well, to point them out or flush them. Yeah, um, I've never spectacular birds. I've got woodcock feathers that my buddy Ira shot somewhere and brought them for me. Oh, they make great soft tackles. Uh, they make great soft tackles and some winged wets. You can do a lot of stuff with game bird plumage. And I'm a big fan of soft tackles. When I see a really good soft tackle, the last best one I ever saw was from the Angler's Covey in Colorado and my buddy Justin had it and I just had to sit down and look at it it was a natural piece of art I should have taken it and swapped out a cheaper one for him to see if he noticed <laughs> well uh, you, you know all flies uh, flies are certainly artistic and good proportions no matter what it is whether it's a streamer or a nymph or a dry fly or a soft tackle um, but the diminutive nature about soft tackles um, are really, really cool with that sparseness of whether it's a starling plumage or a grouse or a woodcock or uh, whatever. And they're very effective in the right applications. Where would you use a soft tackle up there? What, what are your well, patterns? I like swinging flies. Um, I typically fish soft tackles in a, a pre-emergence setting. 
and a pre-emergent setting in close proximity to a, a riffle, um, being that uh, a riffle is the grocery store for a trout stream. So that's where the bulk or the abundance of insect life is going to be. And those insects, immature nymphs, if you will, are either going to be swimming towards the surface to emerge or in a pre-emergence drift, drifting downstream. So I would fish those, uh, a tandem of flies, say a partridge in green or a partridge in yellow. Sulfur time, I fish a lot of partridge in yellow. In, in those pre-emergence times in some of those riffles, where the fish may not quite be up on the surface, there may not be uh, abundance of bugs on the surface, one or two are popping, um, but the fish are starting to, to look up and maybe in that transition zone, if you will, from uh, you know below the surface to a couple feet down. Do you have a special particular favorite bird you will use for your soft tackles and any particular pattern? You see, use the partridges, partridges, and uh, and a lot you of know, people don't fish. I mean, that's a classic wet swung that's, fly. That's a partridge in green, partridge in orange is is a classic, uh, you know, UK or or English style of of soft tackle or, or wet the spiders. Fly. Uh, you know, spiders come into that certainly come into that category. They have a little more hackle to them. Because I'm here in Michigan, I, I tie with a fair amount of grout, rough grouse feathers, um, as well as woodcock feathers that we mentioned. I also like starling feathers because of their dark iridescence along those ways that adds something, I think, uh, to especially darker-bodied flies. And I actually tie some bigger-style wet flies or soft tackles for brown drakes and gray drakes, where I'll step up and actually use a, a brown or a gray hen hackle. Now these flies are a little more heavily hackled than your traditional soft hackle will be. Um, but fish those in, in bigger, heavier water situations. Say gray drakes on the Muskegon, the Muskegon River's a, a big flowing water, excuse me, or on the uh, the deeper, bigger, heavy water with the Manistee or the lower Asable. So of all the rivers you've mentioned, I think the only one I've seen and actually been to is the Pier Marquette. Mm -hmm. That may have been one of the coolest looking streams I've ever come across. It was absolutely well, beautiful. Uh, I think the whole west side of the state of, of Michigan and I'm taking nothing away from rivers on the east side because the Asable flows to the east to Lake Huron. Um, because of the glaciated nature of the west side, um, the timbering that comes into the west side, um, those rivers are really special. The Little Manistee, the Pier Marquette, um, the curves, the nature uh, of that, the way that, uh, you know, they're both, the Little Manistee, well, the Little Manistee has a dam way down, but uh, the Pier Marquette's undammed. is really special. And then when you put to the fact that the, the Pier Marquette in touting Michigan here, the Pier Marquette was the first, where the first successful brown trout planting was in the United States. 
it makes it a pretty historically special place. Think about that. The first successful brown trout planting in the United States was in the PM, in the PM tributaries. Do you think any so, of those, there's still anything alive that could be related to those first ones? There has to be. There, there has to be. Uh, That's pretty historic. Call me... You may uh, call me sappy, call me naive, call me historical, uh, call me whatever you want. But uh, you're going to take that, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here. There's a little stream in, back in Pennsylvania. It was a creek that I caught my first fish on, and it's a wild trout fishery, okay? Now, it's a wild trout fishery now, but it's sometime there were fish planted in it. But I'm 56 years old. The Quiet. dog agrees with you. Yeah. They're going to bark so, 56 times. Yeah. I'm 56 years old. And I can tell you that I caught fish in that creek since I was probably four or five years old. And my dad, who's now deceased, and his brother, my late uncle, caught fish in that creek. And my grandfather caught fish in that creek. And my great-grandfather caught fish in that creek. Not to mention great-uncles and uncles and cousins and numerous other people, okay? And if you look at the data, it goes back to people who had been fishing in that creek kind of right after the Civil War and maybe before that. And there are fish, wild fish. You can go there each October and go to this place and see spawning brook trout right now, or this October. Okay? There's a big cedar tree. And if you think of the cedars of Sinai and, and the history of cedar trees and dating back to biblical times, and I'm not trying to really go off on a philosophical viewpoint here. But how long has that cedar tree been there? Hell, I have no idea. That cedar tree could have been there three, four hundred years because it's a big critter. And how long have those fish been there? And they've overcome every atrocity that man has thrown to them because there's still cold water, there's still gravel, there's still aquatic insects. And they still have refuge. Wild creatures are the most tenacious things in the world. We would roll over and die. Humans would roll over and die dead ten times over for what it takes a wild creature to give up the ghost because yeah. of their tenacity. Absolutely. And then, I bet you didn't think you were going to hear that tonight. Yeah. I love all these stories. <laughs> How about we start talking about, we already mentioned the books. So you've got quite the collection. How long has it taken to build your library at your store? Uh, the library at the store, uh, the, there's two libraries in my life, my personal library and the library at the store, which is, is kind of inventory. It all goes back to my parents and my grandfather. When I was a little kid, my grandfather started buying me and, and my parents for birthdays and Christmas. Um, 
first edition sporting books. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And uh, that kind of went with me. I became a reader, and uh, I kept buying books, uh, sporting books, mainly fly fishing and wing shooting books, because those are where my interests mainly reside. And then when I got into the business, um, I saw an opportunity there to, so now we have uh, close to 4,000 fly fishing and wing shooting books in our store, everything from $5 paperbacks to expensive first editions and everything in between, and we're kind of noted for that. What are some of the more common purchases is there a one book you've got to reorder multiple times? Well, in new book things, you know, new books have a really steep uh, selling curve, and then they, you know, Peter fall off. just as drastically. So uh, the hottest book out right now in Michigan is probably John Osborne's Fly Fisher's Guide to Michigan, done by Wilderness Adventures Press. Um, Fly Fish in the Apocalypse is, is a fairly hot book right now that, that just came out. Um, you know, the George Daniels books from a technical perspective, uh, certainly are good. Uh, Mr. Olson's new, uh, technical book is, uh, been a strong seller as well. If you look at historical things, we do really well with Robert Traver, John Volker, because, uh, he writes about Michigan and the UP and, uh, he was a, a Michigan Supreme court justice. Uh, Tom McGuane's things, uh, A Living Silence is certainly a, a very strong book. Um, but it really depends upon if, if you're a technical angler um, and you want technical things, or if you're more of a lyr lyrical angler and you want to read uh, lyrical things. Uh, another really strong book uh, that is out is Tiger Country by Steve Bodio. It's kind of an environmental novel. It doesn't have a, a lot of um, angling in it, um, but it's a, a really cool environmental novel set in the Southwest uh, that we're re representing Steve on. In the first year, Steve wrote the book reviews at uh, Gray Sporting Journal, and uh, it's kind of fun to, to sell his book. And I will say in the next week to 10 days, uh, there's a new book coming out called The Gray Drake, uh, which we're going to be representing. Uh, this is, a, I guess, a commercial here that is uh, a murder mystery focused around the hex hatch on the Asabo River. And uh, it's a pretty fun read. It's a very fun read. Um, it traipses you all across the state of Michigan. And uh, we're going to have... Uh, hardback copies of that here in probably the next 10 days to two weeks. So that'll be a fun one to represent. Before I ask the next question, have you ever seen the hexes where they're so plentiful they have to snow plows to clear? 
Um, I've never seen the when when you see the the those shots, those aren't typically hexagenial lambadas. Um, not to sound really technical, those are the recurvatas, more the lake hexes. So what you see when you see like the the roads in Detroit or the uh, off of Erie, that where they need snow plows. No, I've never seen those. Is that because um, Erie's more shallow that they're hanging um, out there? It's more shallow and more it's muddy. more abundant of mucky silt, and there's a much more huge population. Um, I've certainly seen it on the Asable, the Manistee, and rivers here in Michigan, where there are so bloody many hexes that you couldn't catch a fish if you wanted to. It's it a bucket just, list thing for me to see. I would love um, to see that. Hexes are fun, but but all spinnerfalls are fun. Um, hexes are fun, uh, but and it's cool to fish the bowling ball size fish in the dark. But it's also really, and maybe I'm getting old, um, and maybe I'm getting tired. But you know, if the goal of this sport is to fool the fish, and everybody has a different goal, but if the goal is to fool the fish, to get the fish to come and eat your spinner, Does it matter if it's a 12-inch fish or a 20-inch fish? Because you've accomplished the same thing, especially with wild fish. <clears throat> and, and, and that may sound really silly. And, and I've been blessed and fortunate that I've caught probably my fair share of big fish or good fish, should I say. But there's something cool about watching a fish eat your fly in the daylight versus just hearing a fish galoosh and setting the hook in dark and going on a roller coaster ride. Nothing that there's nothing anything wrong with the roller coaster ride. But it's all about expectations and this lesson really got driven home to me a couple years ago. I I like old stuff. You probably figured it out by now. That'll lead to the next section, but and, keep going. Uh, anyway, this guy walks into the store, and he's got this old 8-foot Phillips and fiberglass rod, and he wants to sell it, and I buy it. So it's this old 8-foot, eight 6-foot, six, eight 6-weight fiberglass rod. And it's by modern standards, you know, it's wimpy and flexible. It bends at the cork, and you can come up with anything. But I was going up north hex fishing. I said, oh, I'm going to fish that critter. That's the rod I'm going to fish. So I take it out, put a reel on it, put a fly on it. I'm standing in this bend waiting for a fish to go. And in this back channel behind me, this fish starts feeding. And it sounds like it's a decent fish. Nothing huge, but it sounds like a decent fish. And so I turn around and I start to wade up this little back channel through the muck and the mire. And again, we're hex fishing. So we're fishing big flies and we're fishing big tippets. And uh, 
I'm trying to reach this fish up in this little back channel type of pool pond there on the upper Manistee. And I bury my back cast in a cattail. Okay. And now I'm pulling on this cattail, trying to break this fly free. And I can't do it. Okay. The cattail stock is bending over. The rod's bending at the grip. I, my tippet's too hard. I'm not going to break it off. And I don't have any choice, but I wade back through all the muck and mire to get back to take my hex off. And go, you know, this is really stupid. You're screwing around in this little back channel for a small fish. You need to be out here waiting for the good fish to go. And the good fish are going to go here pretty quick. And you can't be doing this. And about this time, this fish slashes again. Now, this is before it's dark. This is like 930, quarter of 10. Yeah, see, Nothing. out here, that would be pitch black. But you guys are so much farther west in the eastern time zone. Oh, yeah. It's like when I fish in Pennsylvania... Uh, on Spring Creek, by 8.30, it's dark. You know, during June out here, we have light till 10.30. We get another two hours of fishing. But it's not as light as early in the morning. But anyway, I digress. So this fish slashes again in this backwater. So back through the muck and the mire, I trudge, and I throw this cast, and I get it out there, and this fish feeds, and I set the hook, and I hook this fish, and it kind of turns sideways, and I get a glimpse at it, and I go, you know, what are you screwing around with on a 15, 15, 16-inch fish for, okay? Yeah, because you got the big fish out in the main current behind you, and you're screwing around. And all of a sudden, I see this fish again, and it's a brook trout, and it's a legitimate 15-plus-inch, I'm not going to call it a 16-inch fish because it wasn't that long, but it's a legitimate 15 plus inch brook trout that I land. Well, I'll tell you, that was the best trout, the best wild trout that I landed that entire hex season. I caught brown trout bigger, and I'm not trying to boast of that, but a 15 and a half inch brook trout, I'm telling you, that's a pretty salty fish in Michigan. And with that rod. Lower Peninsula. And I was like trivializing it because, well, you know, we're we're swinging for the fences, and if it's not X, you you don't want to talk about it. And all these fish are special. Every fish is special, especially every wild fish. Every wild fish is special. I don't care if it's a bluegill. Last I heard, there's nobody that's got a stocking program for bluegills in this country, unless it's private property. And bluegills, carp, smallmouth, all wild fish are special. Right, we're going to chase some uh, wild stripers in the morning here, which will be fun. Oh, stripers are cool. Yeah. And blues and albies, and they're all cool. There's nothing really, nothing that we fish for around here are stocked. There might be some shad, but I've got all wild fish that we're chasing in the rivers and reservoirs. It's kind of nice. That's very special. Yeah. Well, they do stock some creeks with trout, but I usually avoid those. Um, so with all those books, do you have a, a special way to treat a paper cut? A special way to treat a paper cut? Yeah. I imagine you must get paper cuts with all those books. I try and be a little careful. Um, you know, not really. I, I think uh, I'd have to say if it's a bad one, 
zap a gap off the fly tying desk that you know seals everything so yeah. then you just can't read for a while but uh you can do you, they still make zip kicker you would spray know. it right on the zap a gap and it would instantly harden, harden. it was yeah, great for starting know. campfires yeah i have no idea if they do or not yeah we used to take that camping and spritz it on a couple branches and light it and it would go right up all right, so let's talk. You have antique stuff, which is another thing from the show in Virginia last January during the one snowstorm we got all year. I had to keep my wallet away from your display of reels. What well, other historic artifacts and, and gear and tools might you carry? Well, if you come into our shop, then it's just a menagerie, and it's a menagerie because of me. Uh, the right side of the shop is pretty much a commodity fly shop with Sims and Sage and Scott and Winston and Umqua and SA and Rio and Fish Pond. And then the left side is where we hold the books, uh, original artwork and collectible and used tackle. Um, and I, I really think there's a, a place in this world for recycling tackle and things. So if you walk in right now, um, not trying to, to name drop, but we've got a, an absolutely stunning Peter Corbin original painting that Peter did in 1980s that's kind of a Catskill scene. We have a, a really large formatted Rod Crossman original oil painting uh, that Rod did um, of uh, a tributary to uh, the Pier Marquette River here in Michigan, the Baldwin Creek. We have another little original brook trout piece by him. We've got Bogdans and Hardys, and uh, we got a Dickerson rod for sale in the wood vein right now, a couple Leonards, um, some Wes Coopers, who was a Michigan builder, um, we're fortunate, uh, you know, the, the best way to describe me is, I, I guess I'm just the Fred Sanford of fly fishing equipment up this way. And, uh, if it can cast or hold a line or has something to do with angling or the outdoors, uh, I'm interested in merchandising it. So, uh, it, it's kind of a, an eclectic place. Do listeners need to swing by your shop with something, or can they call you and try? Uh, you can you can call us six one six eight six 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 zero six zero. You can go to our website, uh, which is troutmore t r o u t m o o dot net. Or I'll fix it t r o u t m o o r dot net, like the Moors of Trout and the Moors of Scotland. Um, you can see us at a variety of shows in your neck of the woods. Rob will be back at the, the fly fishing wine festival uh, this year. Uh, we'll be at Seaweed, the Southeast Wildlife Art Expo in the Juilliard Center, the Michigan Show, and a variety of other shows around. We keep a list of if people are looking for things. Um, you know, we keep a list of it and contact people that way whether it's books or rods or reels and i tell people that with the nature of our business i could find something for you in two days two weeks two months two years um you just never know what's going to walk in the door 
I, I'm going to Atlanta this weekend to look at a, a really, really cool book collection down there um, that uh, may be an interesting opportunity in the future. You just, you never know. But, you know, we've got everything from wood rods to fiberglass rods to a 486 Sage XP, if anybody's looking for an old XP right now, two-piece rod, um, some old two-piece Winstons. Um, like I said, it's just an imag menagerie, hole-in-the-wall place that uh, some people kind of like to hang out. What if somebody brought into you would make you over the moon, like the Honus Wagner of, of fishing gear? <laughs> The Honus Wagner of fly fishing gear. Yeah, if somebody brought something in, uh, would you just be like, what? Well, you know, you you can always say pie in the sky and and um, things like that. And, and, you know, what would you say? Um, a pair of Brandon rod would be really cool. A baby Bogdan would be really cool. My wife is Miss Kathleen's looking at me right now, going, "Oh, we don't need another Brandon or a Baby Bogdan, Payne Canadian Canoe." There's there's things like that, but um, I really like Fenwick. I really like old Fenwick fly rods in the brown triangular case with white caps and plaid flannel bags, and. Uh, if you want me to become giddy, um, if one of those walks into the shop, um, we probably can do business. Uh, I mean, and the, the thing about that is that's, that's going to really sound weird to some people, but two things about it. Um, a Fenwick fly rod was the first nice fly rod that I ever had. And this is back when Fenwick was kind of a leader in fly rods in this country and had their Lunker Gazette and had their casting classes in West Yellowstone with Maggie Merriman and on at the Golden Gate Casting Club. And those rods are really, really nice rods, even though they're made out of fiberglass. But the rest of the story is that the person who designed those rods was a guy by the name of Jim Green. And when he went through, left Fenwick due to a series of buyouts, he went on and started a little company today we know as Sage Fly Rods. And I don't care, and I learned this from Larry Kenny when I worked with Scott Fly Rods. I don't care what a material is made out of. It can be bamboo, it can be fiberglass, can be graphite it can be whatever you want but a well-designed fly rod is well designed and a poor one is poor the material doesn't matter and those old Fenwick fly rods are pretty nice fishing poles especially if you fish kind of like I do and you like a rod that deflects and is kind of soft and you don't think you need to catch a or cast a country mile to hook a fish. Right. Most fish within 30 feet of you. Yes. All right. So I got some other questions I'm going to ask you now. Okay. What's your favorite Harrison Ford movie? What is my favorite Harrison Ford movie? 
Let me ponder that for a second. What's the where's the best sandwich you've ever eaten? The best sandwich is Mike and Rosie's Deli in Springfield, Ohio. It is they've got this really cool swish swish machine. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they take their sandwiches and they wrap them up in foil and they put them in this machine that's like a giant panini press, only it's got scalding hot water. And the hot water comes out the sides and goes shh. But it like instantly melts this your meat and cheese and bread into this chewable, wonderful, delectable piece. Mike and Rosie's Deli Yum. in uh, Springfield, Ohio. Followed by second best, the a varsity club sub at the varsity club on the campus of Ohio State University in Columbus. We went to a wedding there once. I'll have to go back. And third, the third best sandwich is the Slate Run Tackle Shop's Tom and Deb Finkbinder's Italian sandwich that they do at the Wolf General Store Slate Run Tackle Shop in uh, Slate Run, Pennsylvania. And that's the place with the ant pattern. That's the place with the ant pattern. All right. Uh, if you had a DeLorean that could travel back in time, where would you travel before modern humans have destroyed the environment? Yellowstone National Park. If there was one famous angler you could go back in time with or fish with a living angler, who would you choose? One one famous angler, living or non-living? Mm-hmm. Um... Lewis Reed. Not the singer. Not the singer. But it, that'd be fun. But no, Lewis Reed wrote a, an early book called Trostrum Insects Before Dick's Popes, Trostrum Insects. And he really looked at insect life and, and insect activity in uh, the early part of the, the 1900s. Um, and I think he would be really interesting. Theodore Gordon, of course, would be... Uh, would be spectacular as well, but I would say Lewis Reed. What's the worst place you've ever fished? The worst place I've ever fished. Probably the Olentangy River on the campus of Ohio State University. But the sandwiches are right across the street, so you probably uh, ended up there quicker. You know, fishing was bad, but the beer was cold. Yeah. What's the strangest thing you found while fishing? The strangest thing I found while fishing. The strangest thing I found while fishing. I will say those giant clams or mussels in the Olentangy are pretty strange. I also yeah. found a prosthetic leg in the Olentangy once. Um, I'm tr- trying to think... Uh, what the strangest outside of the the typical answers that it would be um probably old pink old-fashioned foam hair rollers like my mom used to roll her hair up before she went out to dinner on saturday night yeah i remember my friend's mom used to use orange juice cans like, dude, you got to drink a lot of orange juice to make your mom's hair. 
but Tim could do that. And Tim, wait, if you're listening, call us. Uh, also, I forgot to ask at the beginning, what's your celebrity doppelganger so people could picture you while they've been listening? Uh, you know, I, wow, that's a, I would say I'm a slightly slender, slender Santa Claus. Like Chris Kringley. Summer, uh, with a summer cut beard and, uh, and white hair. It's like a, if Santa Claus and Hemingway had a love child. Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, Hemingway, some people have said that, but uh, yeah, I, I think a, a slightly slender Santa Claus. You know, I, I'm like that slender Santa Claus in Rudolph the Rendo's Reindeer. Well, I'm a little heavier than the slender Santa Claus in Rudolph the Rendo's Reindeer, where his wife, Mrs. Claus, is saying, Baba, you got to eat. Baba, you got to eat. Well, I, I've eaten. I'm just not quite there. With your age, this is not to be an ageist question, but are you right or left hand retrieve? Um, both depending upon what i'm doing and depending upon the tackle that i'm fishing i would say i'm 55 percent left hand retrieve 45 percent right hand retrieve so if i decide to pick up a hardy or a bogdan or something that's a right hand retrieve reel i'm not going to fish it because I am not not going to fish that reel because of the retrieve. Okay. If you only had to use one species of bird for the rest of your life to tie with, what would you choose? One species of bird to tie with for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a no-brainer. Uh, it's a chicken. You can do so much stuff from dry flies to wet flies, um, marabou, whatever. It, it would have to be a chicken. All right. Uh, what about hot dogs? Do you put ketchup or mustard on them? Ah, the age-old question, both. And you've got conies up your way i believe oh right? yeah there's lots of conies up Man, this way love the conies. i you know i just uh last weekend i did an event in fenton michigan over by flint and actually ate at a 24-hour hot dog place for breakfast but i didn't didn't have a coney dog for breakfast but they served that but this whole you want to know this whole mustard ketchup interesting thing all dates back to before refrigeration and if you put ketchup on hot dogs in ballparks bees and flies and everything came because of the sugar acid so that's why people only said you use mustard how about that Uh, that's a a little piece of of trivia that's how it always got started because the the vendors walking around because they didn't have bottles they just had open vats and everybody would slather them on bees and insects would go to the ketchup so uh anyway Interesting. Little piece. Here's a piece of baseball trivia if you want to talk about hot dogs. Who's the only pitcher to pitch a no-hitter in the major leagues and lose? Think about it. Pitch a no-hitter in the major leagues and lose. Elliot, the local DJ here in the morning, would know exactly. Um, I don't know. You know. A friend of my father's, a guy by the name of Harvey Haddix, who really? pitched for the Pittsburgh Pirates. 
He pitched uh, nine innings of no-hit ball, came out in the 10th, uh, and they had him intentionally walk the first batter. He stole second base and scored on an error, and he lost the game one to nothing. Anyway. That's heartbreaking. Um, I I like baseball, too. What's your most played album? Most played album? Most played album. Um... Nancy Griffiths, One Fair Summer Evening, or Jackson Brown, Acoustical Number One. Okay. Do you have a drink of choice? If you ever come over while visiting your daughter? Um, a drink of choice. Yeah, what's your drink? Doesn't have to be booze. Um, I like Newcastle and Bushmills. All right, Bushmills apparently is going to stop being sold in Virginia soon. It's going to be on sale, I believe, as well. Send your daughter to this side of the river. I was going to say. Yeah. All right, let's go with one more. Uh, What's the best advice you've ever been given? The best advice that I've ever been given. Regarding business, when you run out of cash, they take you off the playing field. And as far as angling goes, my great uncle Gibb always said that you set the hook third three times. The first time because the fish ate, the second time to make sure that you hooked him the first time and the third time to put the fish in the boat there you go all right any last words of advice for the listeners Uh, have confidence in what you do Uh, first never tie on a fly before you get to the river you need to sit at the river for three four ten minutes and get your river eyes and figure out what you're going to do. Catching fish in a trout stream or in a river is a lot like shooting a pool in a bar. It doesn't do you any bit of good to catch a fish or put a ball in on your first cast or on your first shot or catch a fish on your first cast if you don't give yourself a leave and you can't follow it up and put the next ball in because the person you're fishing again or shooting against is uh, could run the table take your time and observe then tie in a fly and tie in your fly and fish it with confidence well let's leave it with that Glenn I appreciate the time this evening I'm glad we finally got this done after uh, January it's been about I don't know 70 degrees difference since last time I saw you (laughs) not a problem yeah hope it turned out okay absolutely and let me know when you come down to DC and if not, I might come up. How far are you from uh, Columbus? From Columbus, we're six hours. Crikey. That's how far we are from Columbus. Yeah. You forget how so. big this place is. Exactly. So, yeah. Are you going to be at the Fly Fishing uh, and Wine Festival again? I plan to be there. We'll catch up with you then, if All not right. before. We'll drink some Bushmills. Sounds good. All right. Take thank care. you so much. Bye-bye. Some good night. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. 
For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the duck camp dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.